Hi, I am Lynn Kitchens. I'm part of the teaching team. I'm so glad to be here to talk with you about the tabernacle. It's kind of overwhelming to see all the amazing truths when we study the tabernacle and what it means in our lives. So last week we talked at our tables. Deb had us talk about what comes to mind when we think about the word tabernacle. And I heard about one table that thought about Raiders of the Lost Ark. The movie with Harrison Ford. How many of you thought of that? Okay, quite a few people. Uh, so this is the movie where, you know, the bad guys want to open up the Ark of the Covenant. And so I looked it up online thinking, hey, maybe there's something helpful in it for us <laughs> today. Uh, I watched the part where they opened up the Ark of the Covenant, and if you've seen it, you know that when they take the lid off, everybody's faces melt off. <laughs> so I decided this would not be helpful <laughs> to show you today. So we're not going to do that. Here's what is amazing, though. The tabernacle was not a made-up Hollywood story. It was real. It was God's plan that God designed with the incredible intent to dwell with man. So when we toured the tabernacle, there are real truths that hit our hearts. My hope today as we enter the most holy place as we, is that our hearts will be hit with the realities of God's mercies in our lives today. I've told this story before about when Ted and I were blessed to go to Italy and we got to see the Vatican. And one day we were in St. Peter's Basilica and uh, we were touring and I had wandered away from the tour group. And uh, I was very, very lost. But they have these earphones now. Some of you that have been with tour groups have seen these, those whisper earphones. So your tour guide can just talk like this and. A low voice and his voice is coming into your ears so even though I was very lost in this huge strange room with a million people walking around I could still hear my tour guide talking and he was saying where are my people <laughs> my people Lina Lin <laughs> I guess in Italian my name is Lina I, I don't know He's calling me Lena. Lena, where are you? <laughs> I had no idea where I was. I was lost. I was wishing I had a blueprint of the cathedral. Lena, we are looking for you. We are near the pillar. Come to us. There were at least 200 pillars <laughs> in St. Peter's Basilica. I looked around, but the tour guide kept calling me, and I finally found him. His people were finally all together, and I stuck very close to him for the rest of the tour. This is really a very simple illustration of God and his tabernacle, because God had a people. Israel was God's people. God loved them. He was not content for them to be lost in the wilderness. He desired to gather them close. He wanted to be their God. 
He wanted to be their guide. He called out their name to them to bring them into a land of promise, a land of blessing. So he called out, Israel, Israel, come to me. Look at your verse sheet, Hosea. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so God designed a place where he could not only gather his people, he could dwell with his people. The tabernacle. But he knew they would need a blueprint to guide them to himself. And so he gave them detailed plans on how to build this tabernacle so he would dwell with him. They would see the very presence of God as it rested over the tabernacle. It's an unbelievable thing. By God dwelling with them in that way, true worship would happen. And the other thing that would happen is they were being protected from false worship. They were being protected as they worshiped the one true God from following after the false gods of the nations that surrounded them. And this was God's plan. His love for them was like the love that a bridegroom has for his bride. Look what Ezekiel tells us. God says, when I passed by you again, Israel, and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you. I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So built within the blueprint for God's dwelling place was a plan for God's people to know who he was and to understand his mercies. And so I want to take a tabernacle tour today uh, to kind of look at those mercies. Last week we had this overall view of the tabernacle. For the remaining weeks we're going to look at specific items, specific rituals in the temple that God designed uh, so that the tabernacle would function as he knew was best. So today we're going to begin our tour by pulling back the veil and entering the most important place in the tabernacle. It's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. We've got a picture of that. I want you to notice that when you step into the most holy place, you're leaving the black and white place, which is called the holy place. You step into the most holy place. It's at the end of the tabernacle there. And what did you have to push back, or it looks like we tore up in this picture, to get into the most holy place? This beautiful, thick tapestry, this incredible curtain of purple and uh, blues and scarlet covers. And we're going to learn about that in the weeks ahead. So that's all I'm going to say about that right now. But there were other distinctions besides that curtain that divided the two areas. Did you notice there were a number of items in the holy place? But when you stepped into the holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant is the only thing in the most holy place. We saw this brilliant gold chest sitting before us, the Ark of the Covenant. In the holy place, many priests would come every day to serve God and worship him. But only the high priest would enter the most holy place just once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
To be a high priest, you had to be one of the sons of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. There was to be one high priest at any given time, just one. Now, in the future of Israel's future, sometimes there were exceptions to that. But the high priest took charge of the entire priestly order of Israel. Okay, so the holy place was a place of worship and guidance, but the most holy place was the place where God's presence dwelled. Incredible. It functioned like a royal tent, and the Ark of the Covenant was God's throne because God was the king of Israel. Think about it. All the other nations had their earthly kings. Only the nation of Israel had the king of all creation as their king. The king of the universe was their king. So in an earthly situation, it was really common if people were at battle for the armies to gather and then the earthly king would set up a tent in the dead center of the army so he could be a place where he could talk and communicate with the people. But by descending in a cloud, God lived among the center of his people as their mighty king, bringing them divine guidance and direction. The Holy of Holies was a room that was a perfect square of 15 feet, and I would just say it was a place of great power and mercy and the grace of God. It tells us that even though God is so mighty and powerful and majestic and just, he is also good and gracious and generous. It tells us in the Holy of Holies that even though we are sinners who stand before a holy God, he makes a way for us to know him and to be with him. So when I was working on this, it seemed like the most holy place or the Holy of Holies should be the last place we stop on our tour. Uh, because everything else in the tabernacle leads to this sacred place. But then I realized in chapter 25 that all of the objects are arranged by the order of importance and by holiness, moving from the most sacred part of the tabernacle to the least sacred. So the most sacred would be the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, and then the least sacred would probably be out in the courtyard. So whoever's teaching that, I'm sorry I had to say that. Uh, <laughs> I want us to look at God's blueprint to learn about this chest called the Ark of the Covenant. It was also called Ark of the Lord, Ark of God, Ark of Testimony, and the Holy Ark. So look with me at chapter 25 of Exodus, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it. Two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They not, shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. 
Okay, so the word ark, we got a picture of it here, means chest or coffer of small dimensions to hold valuables. Uh, the dimensions would have been, actually, Mindy, I need that picture that's got the elements inside the ark, the second picture. Sorry. There you go. That's the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, would have been 45 inches long, 27 inches high, 27 inches wide. It was, um, yeah, the word Ark was used to mean something small, a small chest that held something very valuable. It was the first item of furniture constructed for the tabernacle. And to carry it, we read how they had poles that they would put in the rings of gold, and the poles were never to be removed. This was because no one was supposed to touch this Ark of the Covenant. The poles made it possible for people to transport it without touching it. God had told them, if you touch it, you will die. This is an incredibly holy place where my glory and my presence and my holiness dwell. Uh, actually, some people had died uh, because of the Ark. This thing happened years later. David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and one of his men reached out to steady the ark. And uh, his face didn't melt off, but he did die. Uh, so the poles were protection for the people. So within the ark were the Ten Commandments we read, uh, but also there was a jar of manna and Aaron's rod that you can see right there when we look right into it. Uh, in these verses we read, God wanted the testimony inside the ark. It's why it's also called the Ark of Testimony. And we know this was the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, also called tablets of the law. And God gave these tablets, remember, on Mount Sinai to Moses, but he ended up giving to him twice. Because remember when Moses came down the mountain the first time with the tablets, there was Israel building a golden calf and worshiping it as a false god. And Moses, in his anger, threw down the tablets and broke them. So he and God met again and rewrote those tablets. They were written by the finger of God himself for the good of his children. And here's what was so good about it. With God's word, Israel could know who their God was. And when they figured out who their God was, they began to know who we need to be. This was an important part of it. So inside the Ark of the Covenant, I think the tablets of the Ten Commandments symbolized God's provision of spiritual food. We also read in Hebrews that God instructed Moses to put a jar of manna in the Ark and Aaron's rod. The manna was the bread that God sent from heaven, we all know, to feed Israel. And it fed them for 40 years as they traveled through the wilderness. Remember when they first saw those flakes on the ground, Israel looked at it and uh, named the bread manna because it means, what is it? That's what manna means. So I think a jar of manna symbolized God's provision of physical food. He met all their needs. Picture that many people in a desert wilderness for 40 years, and God continued to meet every physical need that they had. He sustained them. He satisfied them. And then the rod of Aaron was placed within the Ark of the Covenant, and that was to remind the people that God 
chose the tribe of Levi to be the priests in Israel. And before that, the heads of homes had some priestly responsibilities with their own families, which lets you know why some of the tribes weren't so happy when they found out one tribe was going to be the priestly tribe. They were like, what's wrong with us? Why did the Levites get to be the priestly tribe? And so God had each tribe lay out a staff overnight. And when they all ran to look at the staffs in the morning, the staff of Aaron, the Levite, had budded and even already had almonds on it. And that was a sign to all the people, look here, the tribe of Levi will be God's priestly tribe. He wanted a priesthood to represent the people to God and represent God to the people so he could have a relationship with them. And he was offering a system of redemption through the priesthood as well. So Aaron's rod, in my mind, symbolized a fellowship between God and man that was made possible by the priesthood. So inside the ark were these remarkable symbols of God's everlasting care and his love for them. And they would take that with them everywhere they go to remind themselves of his provision. So I want to look again at the blueprint because if we come and we walk and we stand before the Ark of the Covenant, we notice that it has a lid. And the lid's called the mercy seat. So let's look at that in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay, so the mercy seat. Now we can see what that looks like, which was on top. This is just one artist's rendering of what the ark and the mercy seat could have looked like. This was where God promised to be present, and he was. This was his throne. So whether it was in the wilderness, whether this was in a battle, whether this was in the tabernacle, the mercy seat was a picture that God was enthroned as the king of Israel. In every place that it traveled, the eternal power of God was on display. And it traveled a lot. I'll just give you a quick rundown. The ark was carried around uh, in the tabernacle in the wilderness for 40 years with the mercy seat, of course. It was carried across the Jordan River when they finally got to the promised land. It was carried around Jericho when the walls came a-tumbling down. I'd forgotten about that. 
It was placed in the tabernacle in Shiloh. It was brought to a war camp by King Saul. It was captured by Israel's enemies, the Philistines. It stayed for years in a couple of houses. Those were some blessed people. It was brought to Jerusalem by David and then finally was placed in Solomon's temple that he built for the Lord. And that's really the last time we see the ark. So what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Only Harrison Ford knows. Uh, it probably was captured and or destroyed when the Babylonians came to Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and Judah during the times of the kings. This would have been around 600 B.C. And we think that's really what happened because remember Ezra and Nehemiah came back and rebuilt Jerusalem. And when they built the temple, there was the most holy place. There was the holy of holies. And it was empty because they did not have the Ark of the Covenant anymore after the Babylonians came. The mercy seat was designed as a place for God's powerful presence. And this is where uh, God's presence was especially strong over the seat. And that cloud that we call the Shekinah glory dwelt over it. The word Shekinah actually means to dwell. And the glory of the Lord encompassed that room in that Shekinah glory and rose above the tent so all the people could look up and see every day that God was there. He was their king. He was their guide. He was their protector. And he loved them. The majestic glory of God was also highlighted by the two cherubs on the end of the mercy seat. A cherubim were specific angels that were always connected to the glory of God. They were also the bearers of God's throne, which they were here as well. They are also always connected to situations where God's glory is somehow violated by sin. And we saw that if you read the passage on how the cherubim guarded the entrance into the Garden Eden after God's holiness was violated by sin. And really, the Holy of Holy is one of those places where man's sin and God's mercy meets in the same place. So it makes sense that these cherubs were on the end of this throne of God, the mercy seat. Which leads us to a third reality about the mercy seat. The word for mercy seat comes from a Hebrew root meaning to cover. And this is an amazing aspect of God's divine mercy. The undeserved covering of our sins. Um, I've talked and Ted's talked sometimes in the church about our friend Angelina that visits us every year from China. And um, one day, I don't know if you realize this, but Christ Chapel brings Chinese students in every summer. And we find them host families from the church. And we find them business intern opportunities from people's businesses in the church. And it's a great opportunity for those students. They come every week to Christ Chapel. Most of them, according to Angelina, have never even thought about God. 
They don't talk about him. They don't think about him. So the first time Angelina came, we were standing right up there in the balcony. And they loved to participate in everything. So Angelina did not know the Lord, didn't care to know the Lord. But she sang every song as if she'd been walking with the Lord her whole life. And I was standing next to her, and she was singing a song that had the word redemption in it. And as she sang it, she knows pretty much every English word. She didn't know this word. And she turned to me in the song and said, what is redemption? So I explained to her first that she was a sinner, which didn't go over very well. (laughs) (laughs) That we were all sinners, that we all had a need for someone to redeem us. And God has done that through his son. And that is redemption. And she kind of listened to me and went, huh. That was that. So as our time was coming to an end and she was with us, um, just the week she was about to leave, she went swimming with some people. And in China, people don't steal a whole lot because they don't want to go to prison the rest of their life. So she wasn't used to people stealing. And so she left her camera on a table next to the pool while she went swimming just out in the open she came back it was gone Uh, Ted and I happened not to be around that night so she called us up hysterical just hysterical all her records were gone and why would someone take my camera that bothered her as much as missing the things the idea of an act of stealing So we weren't there. We couldn't help her. She was beside herself. And so both Ted and I said, even though we were in two different places, we're just going to pray that God gets your camera back. She just said, oh, wow. If God gets my camera back, I'm going to know there's a God. We said, well, we're going to pray then. (laughs) And long story short, How many people do you know that get a camera back after it's stolen at a pool, but God got Angelina's camera back? And she came to us and said, yes, praise God. There is a God, and he knows my name. And we said, absolutely. And she was redeemed. Right then, she understood what that word redemption means, how she needed She needed a mediator between her and God because of her sins. And that was a huge mercy. And I thought about the fact, how I opened this, that God was calling her name all the way in China to come here. Angelina, he brought her from there to here so she could understand who God was. We do have a high priest in Christ, but on the yearly Day of Atonement, we have a picture here of the high priest who would sprinkle sacrificial blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of Israel. And they did this because God said, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And I want you to think about it. I don't think the mercy seat looked clear and shiny on top like that for very long because it would have been encrusted with the sacrificial blood of the animals adding onto it year after year. I don't think anyone was going to wipe that off. They knew, do not touch 
this. When we take a closer look at the ark and the mercy seat, I want you to notice something. We get a visual of what's taking place. God's glory is up there in that cloud. The broken laws are inside the bottom of this ark, and in between is the blood. In the ark, the tablets of the law, above the Shekinah glory, and in between the mercy seat, so on the day of atonement, sacrificial blood stood between God and the broken law of Israel. Not that the tablets were broken, but they had broken the laws of Israel by their sins. And God was intervening between the two on that mercy seat. So atonement means at one month. It means the cancellation of sin and reconciliation with God and man. So the high priest had to bring that atonement through a blood sacrifice. So through the atonement cover, God revealed that sinners cannot come to God without a mediator. At the mercy seat, God and sinners met. So if we step out of the most holy place and we're stopping our tour in that area, I want us to make sure that we recognize all of God's mercies on the nation of Israel. Um, have you ever been touring a place and you come to a door that nobody's opening and you like try to sneak in and open to peek in because you think there may be more treasures to look at back here. Hey, that's exactly what's going on here. We would be keeping some wonderful doors shut if we only saw what I just talked about as relating to the nation of Israel and not to us. But it does relate to us. We have doors to open because there's inner mercies for us to look at. God, who is the divine designer, was planning to use the tabernacle blueprint also in new ways in the New Testament. The Old Testament tab tabernacle had been pointing to another one all along in the New Testament, and the tabernacle's name was Jesus Christ. God dwelling with man through his sinless son. And no matter how common the tabernacle might have looked to other mighty nations when they looked on the outside of this tent, everything inside the tabernacle was costly and beautiful and pointed to one day a beautiful Savior coming to be our tabernacle. Look at Isaiah 49. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And God used the tabernacle and the people of Israel to do that. So when we peer into the Holy of Holies, we see mercy. And first of all, here's a mercy I see. He loves us as much as he loved Israel. Because you were once in a wilderness. He called you out of it. He called your name. You were lost in your sins, and yet he wanted to dwell with you. But in order to dwell with us, he had to do something about sin, just as he had to with the people he loved in Israel. First John tells us about the new blueprint that shows his love for us. Look at First John 4. 
In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so God's spirit entered a woman's womb so he could tabernacle with us. Look at Luke 1. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And I want you to read this Exodus 40 passage where they go into the tabernacle, or try to. Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of Jehovah filled the tabernacle. If you'll notice, I italicized the word I abode here, and in the verse from Luke, the word overshadow. Both of these verses have to do with God's glory dwelling with man. So look back at Exodus 40 and see the word abode. Um, It's the same word translated overshadow in the Luke passage. And so what's happening here is the cloud they talk about of God's glory abode abode in um, the tabernacle in Exodus is the same glory that came to a virgin womb of a woman named Mary. It was a holy of holies where God's presence dwelt in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. I thought that was amazing. We hear about his glory, John 1:14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God came here because he loves us. But there was more provision, more mercies. Remember, there has to be a mediator between God and man because God is holy and we are not. In the Old Testament, we saw the high priest was that mediator. Leviticus teaches us that. Look on your verse sheet. Aaron shall present the bull offering as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. That was Israel's mediator. For us, it is Jesus Christ. He is the better high priest. He didn't have to atone for his own sins first because he was sinless. He didn't have to repeat the sacrifice year after year after year. Because his one sacrifice covered all sin. He stands in heaven interceding for us as our permanent high priest instead of a new high priest being brought up every year. He's experienced our hurts, our temptations, our despair. So he's the most compassionate mediator there can be before the throne of God. Look at Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Not only is Jesus our better high priest, he is the better sacrifice. He offered his own blood as our high priest for the sacrifice. No other high priest could do that. 
No other high priest was without sin. Jesus is our mercy seat. I found an old hymn. Sacrificial lamb by God appointed, all our sins on thee were laid. By almighty love anointed, thou hast full atonement made. All thy people are forgiven. Through the virtue of thy blood, opened is the gate of heaven. Peace is made between man and God. Hail Jesus, enthroned in glory. Thee forever will abide. All the heavenly hosts adore thee, seated at the Father's side. There for sinners you are pleading. There for us our place you prepare. Ever for us interceding till in glory we appear. He suffered. He laid down his life. He shed his blood so we might have at one minute with God, our creator. Look at Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, Jesus is also our Ark of the Covenant because we see in Jesus these three treasures that were within the Ark. First of all, he is the testimony that was in the Ark. Uh, Christ said this, Don't think I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it and to bring his salvation. He also said he's the bread that came down from heaven. He is the manna within the Ark. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and those who come to me will not ever hunger. So our lives are continually sustained, and we are satisfied when we dwell with Christ. And he is the rod of Aaron, because that rod pointed to his chosen high priests. It was pointing to the perfect high priest, who is Jesus Christ. And Hebrews tells us, God designated Jesus to be our high priest forever. So we can look around and see one more incredible mercy of God that I'm going to talk about, and that is the very presence of God. Aren't you glad we don't have to go to a tabernacle or a church even to find God? Aren't you glad his presence is with us? We don't have to go to some religious leader. We don't have to keep a list of rules. Jesus said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And Paul lets us know that his very presence lives within us. Look at Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So let's not end our tour of the mercies of God. We have the rest of our lives to be on this tour, opening those doors for treasures that he set out there to sustain us and satisfy us and teach us about who he is so we can know him more. Let's spend our lives looking for those. And guess what? 
one day we get to enter the most holy place where he is and he will be there waiting to welcome us let me pray lord we praise you we believe you we ask that the reality of who you are and your blueprint to know us will be real in our hearts and just bring us that great spiritual and divine joy that only you can give. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.